0: It's also typical in the, the black culture that we have lots of nicknames, and uh, the Tulsa community knows Mary E. Jones Parish as the author of the book uh, the adventure. Uh, the Tulsa Disaster. The Tulsa disaster. disaster, and she was one of the few black journalists who wrote and recorded about that event in history. And her book uh, is one of the few that that is an eyewitness account that that survives. Now we have. Uh, lots of oral testimony, but her book was published. Yeah. Tell me about her and what
1: did you call her? Well, we called Mary Paris Jones Aunt Sweet. She's a very fine lady. When I last seen Mary Paris Jones was in Kansas City. and I wasn't even a teenager at that age. She was coming there from somewhere in the east that she had lived. And she passed through that state a few days with us. And that was the last time I know about it, mm-hmm. and that's that's it. Her she was she married my aunt Daisy's husband, her uh, brother, and uh, that's all I know. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: her book has been called uh, uh, very 12/16. very. Ex- what? 12/16. Yes, the Besse, and it's been. Uh, Said that it is very significant because she kept such accurate records she she gave eyewitness account because she was there and she describes what it was like running from the right she also had tables and listed uh, uh businesses that were destroyed yeah. she was very thorough uh,
1: she was very thorough in this book because I, I read it mm-hmm. how rich the were at that time mm-hmm. how wealthy they were and the book I happened to find the book here when I came off of my uh, tour. I mean, came home, but I never thought nothing about it. But all at once, every every now and then, we began to get popular and popular. They've made a lot of documents on it. They've made a lot of speech about. I mean, about the ride. But the main thing is, the the real ride. Well, that's the real story, because that was eyewitness news and she was a journalist, she knew how to write, mm-hmm. and she wrote what she sold. It's excellent,
0: and Mr. Love is presently the, uh, the owner of the book. Uh, it's not known how many copies were made, perhaps uh, only two or three dozen. Uh, I do know, I know where two copies are located, and Mr. Love is presently uh, working with uh, publishers trying to get a, a reprint, so we hope to have that book reprinted and, and have it in the hands of of all people who want to know more about the Tulsa race riot and that uh, infamous period in history.
2: In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street 1921. heard from one of Tulsa's most legendary musicians, Clarence Love. Love was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and later moved to Kansas City, Kansas with his family in the 1920s, according to his obituary in the Oklahoman. Love was a saxophonist and orchestra leader. He led a touring jazz orchestra that employed a number of people who later rose to fame, including Bill Count Basie and Billie Holiday. Love returned to Oklahoma in 1946 and settled in Tulsa before opening Love's Lounge a few years later, a lounge catering to both Blacks and Whites. Apparently, it was the first of its kind. Love was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame in 1990. He died in Tulsa on January 18, 1998. The clip you just heard was of Love explaining how he knew Mary Elizabeth Jones Parrish before the Tulsa Race Massacre, who we discussed in the previous episode. Parrish was a Tulsa Race Massacre survivor and a journalist who recorded detailed accounts of the Tulsa Race Massacre and its ramifications, which serve as a basis for what we know about the massacre today. After Parrish published her book called Events of the Tulsa Disaster, according to the book Black Wall Street by Hannibal Johnson, most copies of her book were purchased in an attempt to hide the truth of the massacre. As a result, her book became very rare. Many years later, at the time of this interview with author and historian Eddie Fay Gates, Mr. Love owned one of the only copies that was left. In the last episode, we talked about the laborious efforts Black Tulsans undertook to rebuild Black Wall Street into, once again, a flourishing community. Nevertheless, Tulsa remained largely segregated and racial tensions simmered. As an example, Mr. Love is going to explain his ordeal of trying to buy property in South Tulsa, which is a predominantly white area in Tulsa.
0: that is difficult for non-minorities to understand is the frustration, hopelessness, uh, low self-worth that minorities suffer due to systematic uh, prejudice and discrimination. Uh, Usually you're told if you work hard enough and if you're smart enough and and you can overcome anything, and, and that's true to a certain extent, but sometimes hard work and having enough money still isn't enough. Uh, For instance, purchasing a home uh, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The deed to my home on Reservoir Hill in North Tulsa specifically says this property cannot be sold to anyone of African descent. Mr. Clarence Love, our musician that we interviewed earlier, uh, has a story to tell us about that. He had saved up his money from uh, his band uh, work, he had the money to purchase a lovely home in South Tulsa and he couldn't do it. So he's going to tell how he tried to do it and what happened to that. Miss, Mr. Love, would you tell us about that?
1: Well, I was going to buy the home. It was centrally located near the airport. And uh, I was going to make it. It was a, uh, a, a resort like this country club for blacks. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any of that when I was here, so it'd be one of the, Tulsa's first black country clubs. I had an investor that was gonna help me do that, so we, when we went down to the courthouse to file the, the deeds and everything, I was told, just what you just got to see. Mm-hmm. No blacks.
0: Now who was that man was gonna help you? What did you call
1: him? My investor. My
0: but
1: they would call angels, were not right? they? We called them in, in our uh, profession, my angel. That's the man that would finance our bands. And like a man down in Little Town, Mounds, Illinois, and I was building my last big band. He was our godfather or either our angel. He was feeding the boys, and Helen Hughes was in this band. Was going to be in this band. And uh, he would uh, feed us, let us be our status place, to, a business to, to live, and all of that. So I had this fellow who was going to help me start a, a, a Negro country club. We had a golf link, swimming pool, a nine-hole golf link. Eight, eight or nine, I don't know Think by golf. So that, that is what hot and you couldn't do it because of segregation. Uh, uh, you had the money. In uh, other words, I was technical, as they call it. <laughs> That's another thing they call it. Oh. I was black and the red, really no Negroes to be allowed in so many years.
2: Allow me to tell you a story. On September 30th, 1919, About 100 or so African-Americans attended a meeting of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America to discuss unionizing at a church in Hoopsburg, Arkansas, which is about three miles from Elaine, Arkansas. The group of mostly sharecroppers worked on the plantations of white landowners and wanted to push for higher wages for their cotton crops, according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. During this Jim Crow era, Black sharecroppers often faced exploitation while trying to collect payment for their cotton crops. Landowners would often take cotton picked by sharecroppers to the store and lie about the amount of money they paid for it. These lies were often supported by store clerks who manipulated their own records to reflect the landowner's claims. The group of farmers placed armed guards around the church. Nevertheless, a group of white men arrived and disrupted the meeting after landowners had gotten word of the sharecroppers' plans to unionize. A gunfight broke out, and two of the white men were shot. One died. Word of the shootout spread quickly. According to an article in the Smithsonian Magazine dated August of 2018, quote, Governor Charles Bro. called for 500 soldiers from nearby Camp Pike to, as the Arkansas Democrat reported on October 2nd, round up the heavily armed negroes the troops were under order to shoot to kill any negro who refused to surrender immediately they went well beyond that banding together with local vigilantes and killing at least 200 african-americans estimates run much higher but there was never a full accounting End quote the white mob roamed about with guns hunting blacks no one not even women and children were spared Multiple sources, including the University of Arkansas, assert that the killers included local law enforcement officials and those they deputized, as well as informal posse members and, as I just mentioned, federal troops. The killing went on for about a week until October 7th. Despite being attacked by the mob, African Americans were also blamed for the massacre. In the days following the bloody scene, an elaborate cover up was planned. By the end of October, more than 100 African Americans had been charged with crimes stemming from the racial violence, and tried, including 12 Black men who had been convicted of murder and sentenced to die in the electric chair, according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. A sham investigation declared that the gathering of the sharecroppers in the church was part of a planned insurrection of Blacks against white residents. According to a Pointer Institute article by Mark I. Pinsky, which outlines Southern newspapers' roles in racial violence, quote, local media coverage continued to fan the flames daily, reporting sensational stories of an organized plot against whites, end quote, according to Smithsonian.com. A multi-deck headline on the front page of the October 3rd issue of Little Rock's Arkansas Gazette read, quote, Negroes planned to kill all whites. Slaughter was to begin with 21 prominent men as the first victims. Blacks had armed themselves and planned to kill every white person in sight when plot was exposed. A statement subsequently appeared in the Democrat echoing that charge, that those blacks killed were part of a, quote, deliberately planned insurrection of the Negroes against the whites, end quote. Led by the union, the leaders of which planned to utilize, quote, Ignorance and superstition of a race of children for monetary games. End quote. What a sentence. Ignorance and superstition of a race of children for monetary games. In order to counter this narrative, Walter White, a member of the NAACP, slipped into Phillips County while posing as a reporter, according to the Smithsonian. His appearance and fair skin enabled him to blend in well with white residents. In his articles, White debunked the allegations against the African-Americans who were charged and tried. The Black press picked up the story and soon other papers began citing White's reporting in their accounts. At the same time, support for the Black defendants began to grow. The NAACP launched a series of appeals and challenges over a period of three years. The cases of six of the men were sent for retrial, while the other six defendants had their cases argued before the United States Supreme Court under the case Moore v. Dempsey. The NAACP argued that the defendants' 14th Amendment right to due process had been violated. In February of 1923, to the surprise of many at the time, the justices agreed and sided with the defendants. The 12 men, who became known as the Elaine Twelve, were released from prison. As I mentioned in the beginning, this massacre began in 1919. That was the year of the Red Summer in which about 25 or so so-called race riots or massacres or incidents of mob-inspired violence targeting Blacks and Black communities broke out across the country. We covered this period earlier in the podcast. If you take away nothing else from this podcast understand that the Elaine Massacre and the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 was very much a part of and emblematic of part of the Black experience in America at the time. And if you've listened to this podcast or you're familiar with the destruction of Black Wall Street, you may have noticed how eerily similar the Elaine Massacre is to the Tulsa Race Massacre. Let's look at how. Unsuspecting, hardworking African-Americans trying to get a fair shot in life were attacked during horrific massacres in which men, women, and children were killed. In each instance, law enforcement officials are believed to have been complicit in the massacres. Following the massacres, dubious investigations led to, at best, questionable, though more than likely undeserved charges against those who were being attacked and in each case, none of the perpetrators of the massacres were held accountable or brought to justice. The Elaine Massacre is considered to be the deadliest racial confrontation in Arkansas history and possibly the bloodiest racial conflict in U.S. history. Interestingly enough, the Tulsa Race Massacre is also considered to be the worst incident of racial violence in American history. In each massacre, Some sort of cover-up or fabrication of the facts intended to portray the perpetrators in a justified light are concocted and amplified by biased newspapers, significantly influencing public opinion. Dr. Brian Mitchell of the History Department at the University of Arkansas is leading the effort to uncover this grim chapter in Arkansas's history. His efforts began when he and his students started searching for the location of the bodies of those who were killed in the Elaine massacre. Hundreds of people are believed to have died. Still, no one seems to know where their bodies are buried. Similarly, in Tulsa, efforts are underway to unearth what are believed to be mass graves of the victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre. For decades, many people questioned the mere existence of the mass graves although some people in Tulsa claim to know where they are located. And for the purposes of this episode, as a result of the suppression of information, there are still many details about the Elaine massacre that we don't know. According to a New York Times opinion article by Nan Elizabeth Woodrow dated September of 2019, quote, details remain difficult to verify. The perpetrators suppressed coverage of the events and the victims, terrified Black families had no one to turn to for help. In fact, local police were complicit in the killing of untold numbers of African Americans. The Elaine Massacre was among the worst instances of racial violence in American history, and it took place in a region, the Delta, that defined itself by its violence and oppression. End quote. Similarly, As a result of the cover-up and deliberate efforts to suppress the truth about the Tulsa Race Massacre, knowledge of its existence was also buried for years, and if not for some very curious journalists, historians, writers, researchers, and others, the massacre could have been written out of history. This occurred for a number of reasons, all of which had long-lasting ramifications, which we're about to discuss. And yet, none of this was necessarily uncommon. The unfortunate reality of the Jim Crow era is that Black life was commonly erased, both in the physical world as well as in the annals of history. To help us understand why the truth about the Tulsa Race Massacre was suppressed for so many years is Texas journalist and author of the book, The Burning, Massacre, Destruction, and the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, Tim Madigan.
3: I'm Tim Madigan from Fort Worth, Texas. I'm a writer uh, and a journalist and the author of
2: And apparently very modest because you're also considered one of the top journalists um, in Texas, newspaper writers. Can you just tell me how you came to just become interested in the Tulsa Race Massacre?
3: Well, I was born and raised in a small town in Northern Minnesota where there are virtually no black people. And so eventually I found my way to Texas as a journalist. And the plight of African-Americans in our society was, was just not terribly relevant to me because I just hadn't, it just wasn't. And so anyway, one day at the, and this was back in the 19, uh, I'm talking about the 1990s, 80s and 90s. Uh, so one day in my office, my boss comes up to me at the fort worth star telegram newspaper where i was a writer and she hands me this wonder story that described uh, something that the tulsa race riot commission had done and then the last few paragraphs were the summary paragraphs that said in, in may and june of 1921 a mob of thousands of white people had basically obliterated one of America's most prosperous African-American communities. It, and 10,000 were homeless and up to 300 people, most of them black, were killed. And I looked at her and I said, what? This, there's no way this can happen. And she said, that was my reaction too. And so she sent me to Tulsa and I interviewed several survivors. And I interviewed Don Ross, the representative who was instrumental in creating the race Commission. And came back to Fort Worth and wrote a piece called Tulsa's Terrible Secret. And that led to my book, which I, you know, in um, late 1999 and through much of 2000, I spent researching and writing. But to me, the most, uh, the most important part of this, in addition to whatever contribution I can make to restore it to history and bring it out of the shadows, is that experience changed my life. And after learning the history and learning that what happened in Tulsa, as terrible as it was, was perfectly consistent with what was going on in our country at the time, and I learned about Jim Crow, and I learned about I learned about lynchings being reported in newspapers like box scores, and I learned about racial violence in cities, not only in Tulsa, but all over the nation, just went on and on and on and on. And from that point on, it just really changed the way I looked at the world and other people in it. And one of my favorite stories is on my first trip to Tulsa for the newspaper story, I eventually had dinner with Don Ross from the state legislator in this quiet Chinese restaurant. And by then I thought my recording for the day was done, and I was just trying to make conversation. And I said to him something, the fact that, so Don, tell me, what was it like for black people after the civil war and he raises up and he smashes his fist on the table loud enough that everybody in the restaurant looked at us and he said to me you're one of the educated whites he said if we can't depend on you to know our story who can we depend on and my theory is that there are millions and millions and millions of white people like myself with good hearts, that if they only knew the history, their lives would be changed as mine was. And so the book was really written for people like me. And so I'm really glad that during this time, it seems to have found an audience because I really do think it's it's, it's important.
2: When you say people like me, you mean uninformed white people who had no idea about the Tulsa Race Massacre?
3: Correct. White people like me. And, you know, I, I've thought a lot about this over the last few weeks. And one of the contributory aspects of where, where we find ourselves now is the truth of the African-American experience was never taught in our schools. The truth of it, the horrors of slavery, the horrors of, you know, Reconstruction and, and the Jim Crow years were just never taught. And not, or certainly not in ways that really made an impact. And one of the things that I believed, and I also did a series on Jim Crow in Fort Worth for my paper after I published Tulsa Book. And after talking to other people, what I believe what's lacking in our nation today, or has been lacking, is some version of our own Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Where the horrors of the past, as difficult as they are to look at, are brought forth, and, and basically people are required to look at them.
2: So to that point, to the lack of awareness, and to be honest, it isn't just white people, it's white and Black people. I mean, I can't tell you how many people contacted me or I've been in touch with who said I had no idea. Myself, my parents, they instilled the importance of learning and understanding our history in me as a young child. So I grew up knowing a lot of history about African-Americans in America. I double majored journalism, Africana studies, studied abroad in South Africa, you know, lots of knowledge, I thought. And I even myself didn't really understand the full extent of the Tulsa Race Massacre until I started researching it on my own last year. But the part of the, the reason for that, for people like yourself who don't know about it, for people like myself who didn't know that much about it until recently, is because it was deliberately suppressed by you know, very influential people in Tulsa at the time and in Oklahoma at the time. And then there was this culture of fear with regard to the Tulsa race massacre. And I know it's very complicated. There's not like a one size fits all explanation for why people didn't talk about it. But can you, from your perspective and from your research, explain the various reasons you believe people in Tulsa, Black and white, didn't talk about this for decades?
3: Well, in the, in the days immediately after this, the, the massacre, the burning, journalists came in from all over the country, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Houston, et cetera, et cetera. And the leaders of White Tulsa couldn't have been any more contrite. And they were, this is horrible, and we're going to make this right, and it's a shame in our community, and blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as the reporters left, and, soon, and as soon as the attention span of the media and other people you know, moved someplace else, but what ended up immediately happening is White Tulsa made a land grab and tried to take over what had been Greenwood, and only legal action prevented them from doing that. And so their true, and the, this kind of sham of the grand jury was convened, and the true kind of spirit of what was going on in White Tulsa had revealed itself in, in the next year or so after the, After this happened and the subsequent years, decades and generations, generally speaking, I think that white Tulsa was ashamed in some respects. And they were afraid that there, you know, that there's no statute of limitations on murder, that this could be unearthed and that they could have some legal exposure to this. And in the black communities, I came across this just now. And it, and it refers to Don Ross that I referred to earlier, and you am sure you're familiar with. Him. But in the 1950s, he was in a high school student, and he went to a yearbook meeting, and the yearbook advisor was a guy named Bill Williams, who was a teenager at the time this happened, and who fought alongside his father trying to repel the mob. And so, anyway, during this meeting, Bill Williams somehow another digressive into what happened and that night in Tulsa in 1921, and Don Ross says, you're lying. There's no way that could have happened here without me knowing about it. And Bill Williams said, Don, sit down and shut up. The next day, he calls him into his office and shows him a scrapbook with picture after picture of corpses, white moms, burning buildings, kind of the, the tableau of what happened. And then he started introducing him to other survivors, and he started to hear the stories of, of what happened that night. And so he says to these guys, you know, he says, why in the world would you keep such a thing a secret? And so Bill Williams tells him, he says, because the killers are still in charge in this town, boy. He said, now you understand what anyone who lived through that once damn sure doesn't want to have to live through it again. You ask a Negro about the ride, he'll tell you what happened if he knows who you are. But everyone's real careful about what they say. I hear the same is true for the white folks, so I suspect their reasons are different. They're not afraid, just embarrassed. Or if they are afraid, it's not of dying, it's of going to jail. And I think that that, you know, in broad strokes, explains how this was. And the miracle of it is that it was so effective, that there was this almost airtight case of cultural amnesia that came over Tulsa. And another story I just read of this teacher who came to town in the late 40s, and she's a social worker, and she had heard through a black friend about this. And talk to our white students about it. And none of them knew anything about it. or were very defensive about it. And when my book was published, you know, and all the media I did and the radio interviews and whatnot, you know, and Colin shows, I I heard from dozens upon dozens of people, either from Oklahoma or from Tulsa, who said, this is the first time hearing about it. And frankly, my book was published in 2001. And I think that the timing was off a little bit. I don't think that the world is ready to read that story. I think they're ready to read it today. But again, the real introduction of Tulsa, what happened in Tulsa, I believe, came through the opening sequence of Watchmen. And people were saying, that was horrible, that must be fiction. Well, it wasn't fiction. It was a true depiction based largely on my depiction of it in, in my book.
2: Actually, I want to mention where I was going to mention that because the creators of Watchmen is quoted as saying they read your book in in preparation for this series. There's a quote in an article last year. The person speaking is director Nicole Castle. She recounted to Slate.com what went into recreating the event for the show. She says, quote, enormous amount of time went into planning that from reading a book, The Burning by Tim Madigan. When I read the script, uh, Damon Lindelof, series creator, told me Tulsa 21's real says Castle. We went to Greenwood and Tulsa and met with people there. The center there was 250 people at least, incredible number of stunts. I definitely did the research. And I've seen your name come up a number of times when the Creators have been interviewed and, you know, t- talked about their preparation for the show. So personally, how do you think their depiction of the the massacre was? It, it, I'm not asking you to grade it, but do you think it was, you know, a pretty accurate depiction, especially based on your book?
3: I looked at it again just the other day and I was stunned. It was like exactly how I... Imagined it only more vivid, more terrible, more awful, but there's nothing about what I saw. It was, it was beautifully done in terms of capturing what I think the essence of the horror of it, but it was stunning to watch. I think, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think that scene, that opening sequence is so important to uh, restoring this to history.
2: I definitely agree. I often credit Watchmen with reintroducing or introducing the Tulsa Race Massacre into the collective consciousness of the country, those of us who are willing to learn or listen. My only question is, it's my understanding that the massacre started at night or in the evening, and Watchmen, they portrayed it beginning when it was daylight. Did you notice that at all?
3: Well, it started in the evening, but it continued through the daylight. The initial skirmish started at the courthouse that night when the black people were going to try to make sure that Dick Rowland wasn't lynched. And then the skirmish broke out and there was fighting that went on through most of the night. But it was at 5.08 a.m. when there was a whistle, either a train whistle or basically a signal to the white mob to begin their attack. And that went on, serious fighting went on uh, through most of the morning. I think it was probably, you know, Greenwood was overrun and essentially obliterated by early afternoon. But I think that the actual attack on Greenwood took part during the daylight hours. So I think that it was accurate.
2: You mentioned that you do not think the world was ready for your book when it was published in 2001. You think the world is ready now? What do you think has changed? And why do you think even after your book was published in 2001 and even received a lot of attention, this massacre still largely went unknown among most Americans?
3: There was a, you know, when the book came out, and it was widely reviewed uh, in all the right places. My sense is that white people just didn't want to read it. It's too painful and too ugly. When I finished the book, I knew at the deepest level of my being that we had a huge problem in this nation when it came to race. Basically, unhealed wounds and unexplored issues, and it just went on and on. And after The burden was published in 2001, no one was talking about it. And I thought that I was losing my mind that you know there's this horrible thing happening in this country but no one's talking about it and then katrina happens and things like katrina happens and who do you see in the superdome all the black and brown faces which again i was like it's starting to make sense now because in addition to describing uh, what happened the the actual massacre itself i tried to do as best i could to try to put it in context with what was going on in in the country at the time in terms of of a Nation and KKK and Jim Crow and all that, all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm just, uh, and my soapbox has been, we can't move forward until we look back.
2: Black prosperity, or the pursuit of it, was a threat to the segregated and oppressive way of life many perpetrators of racial violence in the early to mid-1900s preferred. Black wealth most certainly represented an end to that way of life, as it offered Blacks a vehicle for upward mobility with which to elevate their station in life. To prevent this from happening, just as Black life and any record of it were commonly erased during this period, that wealth, and oftentimes the Blacks who owned it, were also at great risk of being erased. Shamari Wills is a journalist and the author of Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. As he shows us, the erasure of Black wealth and those associated with it, or the attempt to erase both, happened in and outside of Black Wall Street. Mari Wills. You are, full disclosure actually, (laughs) you and I went to graduate school together, Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, and that's when I first met you. And you're also the author of a book called Black Fortunes. Why don't you tell me about the book and what was the inspiration for writing it?
4: The book is basically about a, a narrative history of the first generation of black wealth, first generation of black folks that came out of uh, slavery, started during the slavery period, actually, and were able to kind of become millionaires and kind of pull up the rest of their communities with them. So the inspiration for the book actually happened in Jamaica. I was there as a reporter, and I discovered this guy named George DeBille. He was the first black millionaire in the history of Jamaica. And I was actually going to write a book on him, but the logistics didn't work out with, you know, the source material being in Jamaica in me being based in New York. So I thought about it and I, you know, started researching who the first black millionaires in the United States were here. And I was really surprised to see that they were not widely known, or even in many cases, even considered to be early black millionaires. You know, they had sort of been forgotten from history to a degree. So the inspiration for the book was to kind of unearth those stories and weave the stories of these first five black, you know, business titans into uh, a narrative.
2: And so we're going to be focusing on one of them in particular, but just for all intents and purposes, why don't you just list who these people were, their names? Because I believe in giving, you know, people credit where credit is due and let's name them.
4: There's five main people. I try to kind of I'll give some time to all of the early black business titans, like William Leidesdorf, who was actually the first, very, very first black millionaire. He's in the very first chapter of the book. But the book actually focuses on Mary Ellen Pleasant, who made her money in the gold rush in the 1850s in California. Robert Reed Church, who's basically the father of Memphis, and he built Bill Street, uh, and he made his money in the South. He was the first black millionaire in the South. There's also Hannah Elias, who was kind of um, a socialite, sort of, at the turn of the century in New York, and made the majority of her money by investing a uh, pretty hefty gift that was given to her by a lover of hers. And then I also talk about Annie Turnbow Malone, who was sort of the precursor to Madam C.J. Walker. And then the gentleman I suppose we're talking about today, which was O.W. Gurley, who along with John the Baptist Stratford was the developer and founder of Black Wall Street. J.B. Stratford and O.W. Gurley, they were kind of like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X characters, you know. Yeah. Uh, O.W. Gurley was much more conservative.
2: So Black Fortunes, it focuses on the first black millionaires in the United States, people who've been all but forgotten in present day America and you breathe new life into their lives, their history, their narrative. And two people in particular that are relevant to this podcast, Black Wall Street 1921, as you just mentioned, are O. W. Gurley and J. B. Stratford, both considered to be really pioneers of Tulsa, particularly Black Wall Street. J. B. Stratford actually born a slave and ultimately went on to become an attorney and a businessman. O.W. Gurley, a very respected businessman as well. So why don't you just tell me about these characters and and how you unravel their life stories in your book?
4: I kind of start to tell us story with the early land runs and you know some of the African-Americans that were involved in. The first land runs when Oklahoma was being developed and O.W. Gurley actually procured some land during one of the land runs. He never ended up developing it but he kind of came back to the concept of, you know, maybe building something and developing something when you had the uh, oil boom in Tulsa and it just started becoming this booming area with lots of opportunity. And he was actually working as a teacher slash administrator in in the nearby town. And, you know, he kind of gave up that life to come to the Tulsa area and what was, you know, kind of an undeveloped stretch of land it wasn't incorporated into Tulsa yet, and started to develop that area into what became Black Wall Street. He was a, you know, really ambitious guy throughout his life. He initially worked for the uh, postal department, which, you know, back then was a pretty big deal because it was really the only government job that an African American could hold at that time. So that was considered to be a really prestigious job for an African American. And then he, of course, became an educator. And he was just always striving, extremely ambitious person and, you know, kind of the oil boom in Tulsa and the opportunity to build something piggybacking off of that. That was sort of his big break. And, you know, that's kind of how he got started.
2: And he went on to really amass quite a fortune. How did he make most of his money? O.W. Gurley.
4: So he was a real estate developer. He had a hotel. And then he owned a lot of the buildings in Tulsa, so he was also a a big-time landlord. So most of the folks in Tulsa, not most, but a a good percentage of the folks in Tulsa, he was actually their landlord.
2: By Tulsa, do you mean Greenwood, particularly Black Wall
4: Street? Yeah, pardon me. So by Tulsa, I mean Black Tulsa or Greenwood, Black Wall Street. He was the big-time real estate developer, so he made his money building buildings, renting them out, and he had a hotel as well.
2: So how did he and J.B. Stratford come to be good friends?
4: Well, I kind of, I don't know if I would describe them as friends. I think they may have started out as friends. They kind of had very similar backgrounds. You mentioned J.B. was born a slave. O.W. wasn't quite born a slave if the vital records are to be believed. He was born uh, a few months after slavery ended in Arkansas. But, you know, it's also impossible to say whether his parents were freed by the time he was born or not. Because as we've come to the sort of Juneteenth becoming more mainstream, slavery didn't necessarily end in a linear fashion. It was basically when you were told you were free is when you were free, not necessarily when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed into uh, executive order by Abraham Lincoln. So but they both had this kind of background. Both of their parents were slaves. In the South, they had dealt with a lot of racism, a lot of feeling stifled economically as, you know, brilliant Black men. And they kind of arrived there and started developing it together. And, you know, they kind of diverged. You know, their friendship became sort of a rivalry later in their lives. But they did have a lot in common. And they were both extremely ambitious.
2: They did operate in the same circles. It was a probably a very elite group of pioneers, rather, in Black Wall Street. So what was the nature of their relationship?
4: So I'd say at least the way that it started when they both started developing that sort of area north of Tulsa, the Greenwood area, at around the same time. You know, I'd say J.B. was kind of the sort of junior partner. O.W. is much more of a politician when he was a much more pragmatic. So at least initially, he was able to kind of liaise with white Tulsa a lot better. He was made a sheriff's deputy over Greenwood by the authorities in Tulsa for a long period of time. He was very good at getting things built, getting things developed. And, you know, J.B. was right behind him, but he was not quite as prolific as O.W. early on. But as time went on, O.W.'s sort of conservative ways you know, they war on people. Plus, it was kind of a weird relationship with him being people's landlord, but then also being the sheriff's deputy. When people started to resent him, and he was also very conservative, well, not very conservative, but conservative compared to where a lot of African-Americans were. And JB was much more militant, much more radical. So there was a period, probably around the 19-teens, when O.W. started to fall out of favor with the folks who were actually living in Tulsa. And a lot of people started to see JB as really the leader, more than OW.
2: When you say he was more conservative, does that mean he was less outspoken about equal rights for Black people, or at least you know access to opportunity for Black people?
4: Yeah. So I mean, him and OW really kind of embody the W.E.B. Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington divide. OW is more in the mold of Booker T. Washington, you know, kind of not necessarily making waves in terms of being extremely militant just kind of being very focused at making money developing opportunities for yourself and not necessarily being outwardly radical for ow that more looked like you know trying to liaise and kind of get along with white tulsa not necessarily challenge them on some of the issues uh, and the racism that was festering there it also meant like you know when there were clashes between Greenwood and White Tulsa, that, you know, O.W. was always kind of the person who was kind of trying to throw water on the flames, telling folks, hey, you know, don't let this get out of control. Just, you know, kind of leave it alone. And folks didn't like that. J.B., on the other hand, was much more radical. You know, he was part of different militia groups at different times in Greenwood. He brought uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was considered to be almost like the Malcolm X of his time, to speak in Greenwood. And he was just, you know, much more confrontational and just much more radical in wanting to directly confront the racism that was literally sitting right beneath them and white Tulsa. And also aggressively advocate for Black rights as opposed to O.W., who was more pragmatic and incremental.
2: So we actually spent a part of uh, a previous episode talking about JB Stratford, his life, his ordeal in the Tulsa Race Massacre, how he escaped, really escaped prosecution because he was one of those charged for rioting in the massacre and then went on to live the rest of his life in Chicago after he fled Tulsa. We didn't really explore that much about O.W., he seems to be a little more of a mysterious character, at least from what I've been able to uncover about him. I'm sure your research is a bit more extensive. So what happened after the Tulsa Race Massacre to O.W. Burley?
4: So I'm not sure what happened to him immediately after it, where he went. You know, I theorize he kind of stayed around the Oklahoma area to kind of wrap up his business because he did testify in the tribunals after the massacre and then he kind of stayed around to sell his land. But ultimately he ended up moving to Los Angeles with his wife and they started a small hotel that they ran for the rest of their lives and just say they kind of just lived out a quiet sort of existence. And you know, one of the things that's really interesting about OW is there was this urban legend for him about him for the longest time that he was killed in the race riots. And, you know, I think that kind of spread because of how he kind of disappeared afterwards, you know, kind of unceremoniously. But he did kind of live out a quiet life in Los Angeles with his wife until he passed away.
2: So you said he sold most of his land. Did he lose a substantial amount of wealth in the massacre like most people in Greenwood?
4: Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think he lost probably about 80% of his net worth.
2: That's hard to fathom. And yet he still had enough to leave and at least start over someplace else.
4: Yeah, I mean, he did get to leave. I mean, he just had the one hotel in Los Angeles, which was, you know, pales in comparison to sort of the real estate empire that he had in Greenwood. But I think, um, if I can speculate, I think he was just really traumatized, like a lot of folks were by the massacre and was just happy to be able to get out and get to the North, which kind of was the next safe haven for African-Americans. Oklahoma, they imagined it to be, you know, they tried to find that in in the North as well.
2: So I recently interviewed a descendant of J.B. Stratford, two actually, two descendants. However, one of them is his great-great-grandson. His name is Nate Holloway, And Nate, he described for me how according to the knowledge that has been passed down in his family after the massacre and after law enforcement officials and agencies started to conduct their investigation with air quotes around that word. He says that O.W. Gurley turned on J.B. and basically testified or gave a statement against him. So I wonder if, you know he maybe gave a statement that perhaps implicated j. b. Strafford and perhaps gave the police and the attorney general the excuse they needed to charge j b and others. Have you heard anything like that?
4: Well, yeah, I know that I have heard something like that, but you know o w definitely blamed j b and some of the more more radical folks and uh, Tulsa for what happened. Certainly not as much as he blamed the white Tulsans, but uh, I think he felt it was preventable, and I think he blamed JB. Because on that night before the massacre, when things were starting to sort of simmer over, OW was trying to calm things down. He went to the courthouse, tried to kind of talk down the group that was there, You know, he kind of tried to, you know, intervene with some of the younger people in Tulsa that kind of wanted to go and try to rescue uh, Dick from from the courthouse. According to OW, JB wasn't doing that. He wasn't, you know, kind of trying to throw cold water on it and to an extent he might have even been part of the group that was, you know, sort of wanting to have confrontation. And OW kind of felt like, they should have just left it alone and they should have, you know, let the court system work it out and he believed that, you know, Dick would be released the next day, as they were told. And he really trusted the system and he just wanted to let it play out, which I don't know if that was the right thing, but eventually that's not what happened. And, you know, it kind of provided an excuse for the whites to attack Tulsa. And so he definitely blamed JB. I have not read his testimony in quite some time but that doesn't sound incorrect to me.
2: So one of the things that we are beginning to cover and really delve into is the extent to which the massacre was covered up and essentially the truth was suppressed for many decades. We've gone over several different reasons why people especially survivors and witnesses didn't really talk about the massacre for many many years afterwards and what i think is really interesting is this parallel that you present with your story which is that you wanted to highlight these black millionaires because they too were sort of written out of history over the years and what is interesting to me is In America, we really revere great business people. We really revere pioneers of industry and commerce. But when it comes to Black uh, or wealthy African Americans of this era, with the exception of maybe Madam C.J. Walker, because her footprint is still very much present today with her hair products, but with the exception of Madam C.J. Walker, we really... Do not acknowledge these other black millionaires, not the ones that you focus on in your book, including J.B. Stratford and O.W. Gurley and some of the other wealthy people in Tulsa and Oklahoma at the time. Why do you think that is?
4: I think it has something to do with who's telling the history to a certain extent. And, you know, I think these other success stories are a little bit more complicated. And I think we're at the point in history when people are ready to hear them. It's there's a difference between, you know, someone who kind of has a archetypical American success story. You know, they start a business, they work on the business, the business does really well, and then they kind of get rich. But you look at someone like O.W. Gurley, whose story is inextricable from, you know, Jim Crow and the racial violence that happened in that era. You know, same thing with all of these characters. You know, they didn't use their wealth to buy extravagant things. I mean, they had nice things, a lot of them. But they more concentrated their wealth on helping African-Americans establish themselves after emancipation. And the work that they did, as well as the things that happened to them as a byproduct of that is, you know, it's challenging for people to hear. It's not a feel-good story, necessarily. Pretty much the exception of Annie Malone and Madame CJ Walker, all the characters in my book had attempts made on their life, sometimes in multiple cases, because just the threat of being Black and being wealthy is such a challenge, especially to, to, you know, racist at that time, especially for people that were directly taking that wealth and using it to help other Black people and to kind of close the gap between African-Americans and white Americans. I just think they're more difficult stories. They're not they're not typical feel good American, you know, stories, you know, American business success stories like Madam C.J. Walker's story is. You know, and she did some activism, but it's not really anything compared to what any of these other folks did. Their activism almost cost them their lives in most cases. And so I just think the stories are a little bit more complicated. When they're a little bit more challenging for folks to, to learn about.
2: And interestingly enough, at least in my point of view, with the exception of, you know, Madam Walker, it seems to me like these characters, these wealthy African-Americans in the early 20th century, they also felt compelled to this activism that perhaps cost them their wealth or almost cost them their lives. It was almost as if they felt like they didn't have the luxury of just not saying or doing anything. And O.W. Gurley, he's a little bit of an exception because he doesn't necessarily fit that mold. Whereas somebody like J.B. Stratford and and others, as you mentioned, use their power, influence, and wealth to sort of uplift their community. And I wonder why you think that is.
4: Well, I mean, I would kind of disagree with you a little bit on O.W. I mean, I think he, you know, certainly doesn't necessarily come across as you know, right, you know, in terms of his, you know, conservatism, but I think it came from a deep place of concern for his community. I think you can kind of look at what he was doing as being conciliatory towards whites, but I I profile in my uh, book in a particular incident where he beat up two white men that harassed his wife. He certainly was not, you know, uh, someone who was acquiescing to whites just because he wanted their approval, I think he deeply feared the type of reprisal that could happen, like the massacre. And he was deeply distrusting of white people, but in, in, in a way where he just wanted to sort of avoid confrontation with them, because I think he thought it, it wouldn't end well. And his sort of political ideology, I think, came out of a deep sense of wanting to protect his own people and not wanting anything bad to happen to them. And if he, you know, this Booker T. Washington mentality of it, if Black people kind of just focused on, kept their eyes on the prize and didn't directly confront White people, that, you know, that was the best path. But he did do a lot of activism. He he did help where he could, but he just wasn't as radical as, as, as say, J.B. I, I think he really firmly more than any of the other people in my book. What I would say is he uh, was the most direct disciple of sort of the Booker T. Washington philosophy, which was very popular with people who were directly coming out of slavery, whose parents were slaves or they were slaves. You know, and towards the turn of the century, the more radical theories of kind of W.E.B. Du Bois started to become more popular. So it was a combination of sort of a ideological divide and a political divide. But I think his heart was very much into helping African-Americans. I think it's one of the reasons he wanted to build Black Wall Street.
2: That's really interesting. So, but this idea that they didn't necessarily have the luxury then of perhaps just sitting back and spending their wealth on nice things and then creating trust funds, inheritances for their descendants. Where do you think that sense of responsibility came from?
4: I think it was very much a product of their, their own life experiences. O.W. Gurley's parents were slaves, and he may have even been born a slave. I'm not sure. According to the vital documents I have, he was born a few months after slavery. Ended officially, but I'm not sure when it ended where he was at. So when all of these folks, Robert Reed Church from Memphis, he was a slave most of his life. You know, Mary Ellen Pleasant was born free, but she was running to uh, escape, being captured back into slavery a lot of her life. I think for them, they just, in, in in a deep and visceral way, they knew that things were not okay after emancipation, that the embers of the Confederacy were still there, and that the government was not doing as much as it could have done to help African-Americans after slavery. And so they had to kind of step in and protect African-Americans and provide opportunities for them.
2: So is there any trace of these people, their influence, their power, their success? Is there any trace of them, do you think, in modern day America, similar to like Madam C.J. Walker?
4: I'd say, you know, I don't think Black Wall Street was really that unique you know, and I sort of write about this in my book, as a community, there were several Black communities in America that were much wealthier than Black Wall Street. There was, in fact, Black Wall Street wasn't even the only Black Wall Street that had that name. So it wasn't so much the concept of having an African-American community was affluent that, that, that made Black Wall Street special. It was that it was in Oklahoma because Oklahoma was... In a lot of ways, it was the first great migration for African-Americans. The migration west to Oklahoma, to the promised land, because right after slavery, when you started to have Jim Crow coming in, bad race riots, all these other sorts of things, a lot of African-Americans sort of wanted to go to Oklahoma. It didn't have these deep ties to white slavery in the way that other states did. It had slavery, but the slave masters were Native Americans because it was a Native American area. And African-Americans really went to Oklahoma with these migratory hopes of building something there. And you know that's why you had so many different people from different places end up there. And while the massacre kind of dashed the hopes that this was gonna be the promised land, this was gonna be the place where African-Americans were safe, it provided for a time, a place where those aspirations could be kept alive. And in a lot of ways, that same spirit is what, you know, drove the Great Migration North later on. As far as today, I just think African Americans are always looking for a place where they can be safe, uh, a place where they have economic opportunity, because it's still way too limited. And I think that aspiration is still there, you know, and wherever that can happen, it will happen. You know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and everybody called it Chocolate City when I was growing up. And they called it that because it was a place that African Americans could go and have, you know, a good life. They could have a stable job, they could be safe. So as long as, you know, that yearning for a good life to be safe, to be free is still there, I think you'll see communities like Black Wall Street, you know, as long as there are black people.
2: Finally, since these people really I mean with the exception of your book, and with the exception of, again, Madam C. J. Walker, I've never heard of the others in your book other than J.B. Stratford and O.W. Gurley, because I talk about them in my podcast, Black Wall Street 1921. So what do you think it's going to take for Americans to include this type of history in the curriculum? Or at least in mainstream knowledge of the history of our country and perhaps, you know, give these people a place in history where they are not just, you know, written out of it because of the color of their skin.
4: I think it's just gonna take time. I think American history is, you know, extremely oversimplified. We just learn, we memorize the presidents and then maybe a few other people from important civil rights movement, the suffrage movement. But, you know, I think we have to really think about the way that we learn history. You know, we learn it through learning about these singular figures. So is this guy that you need to know about who was in the 1850s or is this person or is that person? I think, you know, history, you know, has a lot more characters and a lot more actors than we're often taught. And I think as we can kind of have a more complex and textured understanding of history, it's not just about presidents and not just about one or two leaders of different movements. Hopefully these folks will become, you know, more well known because I can give you multiple other areas that people are being overlooked in. And I think it just has to do with history being oversimplified.
2: In the next episode, we'll explore where the bodies of the Tulsa race massacre victims could be buried. In the meantime, you can visit our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com, for more resources and information. Be sure to check us out on social media, including our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Just search for Black Wall Street 1921. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from.